morning. Thank you, Joe. It is uh, it's wonderful to be back at, at New Hope. Uh, my name is Jason Poling, uh, and I serve New Hope as Pastor Emeritus. Emeritus is Latin for they let me keep my old email because I would be locked out of so many websites when I forget my password. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I have always loved uh, about New Hope, and by the way, I, I, I shouldn't forget to mention, I, um, Bishop Sutton uh, sends his greetings. I had breakfast with him this week, and he asked uh, about New Hope and asked how we're doing. Uh, always happy to, to give him a good report. Um, one of the things that I've always appreciated about New Hope is that in many ways, uh, and in really so many dimensions of our life together, uh, we exhibit what the great doctors of the church referred to as well-ordered loves. The idea is that we are to love the right things in the right measure. So it's possible to love some things too much, and then you crowd out other things that you ought to be loving. It's also possible to love the wrong things. And while there are some people here who do, in fact, love the Steelers, <laughs> most of us love the Ravens. As, in fact, Jesus commanded. There is no other team that Jesus talked about. You can search the pages of the gospel. You can search the apocryphal gospels. He did not say, consider the patriots. He did not say, consider the chiefs. He did not say, consider the broncos. But he did say, consider the ravens. And as I've been doing that this week, during the draft, I've once again uh, been very hopeful. Uh, looks, like we got some, looks like we got some good talent. Uh, and... As I thought about our passage for today, it occurred to me that one of the most important things that we can recognize about our relationship with God is that He drafts us. Jesus said on the night He was betrayed to His disciples, remember, guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So don't, don't go thinking that somehow this was your thing that I'm along for the ride on. No, Jesus drafts us. And that is a good thing. Because if it were up to us, we would be toast. If it were up to our love for God, as opposed to God's love for us, man, we would be in trouble. We see this abundantly in the pages of the Old Testament. I think we did at one point a, a series on Hosea. There's a recurring theme in the book of Hosea where God's critique of his people, as he articulates it through the prophet, is there's no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge of God in the land, only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. God says, my people, verse 6, chapter 4, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Now there he's not talking about lack of knowledge like you don't do well in bar trivia or or you always have to Google stuff that you forget. That knowledge, the Hebrew word is yada, it refers to the kind of knowledge, well, 
I'll just point out that in the beginning of chapter 4, we see that word when the writer of Genesis tells us that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Yada is an intimate kind of knowledge. It's personal. There's a deep connection. It's not just knowing about, but it's knowing intimately. Last Sunday at at our church, my daughter Alicia came and sang that magnificent aria from Handel's Messiah, He Shall Feed His Flock Like a Shepherd. The, the second part of this is, this is where some singers will flex. The, the first half of it is in the alto part, the second in the soprano, and when singers like Alicia want to show off their range or when they're asked by their father to show off their range, they'll sing both halves. But in the second, the, the lyric is, Come unto him, all ye that labor, Come unto him, all ye that are heavy laden, and he shall give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. That line, take his yoke upon you and learn of him, doesn't mean no stuff about him. It means deepen your intimate personal knowledge of him. And the only way we can do that is because of his knowledge of us. Hosea goes on to say in chapter 6, he portrays God's people saying, okay, let's, 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 know, let's know Yahweh, let's know God, let us press on to know him as surely as the sun rises, he'll appear, he'll come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. But God replies, what, what am I going to do with you? Your love's like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. My love is indeed like the rains that water the earth. Yours, it's the morning dew. It's the mist. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. Oh, Israel cries out, chapter, chapter 8, they cry out, we... We know you, O oh Lord, our God, we, we know you, but Israel has rejected what is good. And because of that, an enemy will pursue him. Toward the end, in chapter 13, God says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall know no God but me. No Savior except me. This thing gets picked up later on in Jeremiah. And the prophet says, the day is going to come. The day is going to come. When no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know Yahweh. Because they're all going to know me. The least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh, because I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And if you want to read more about that, go to chapters 8 through 10 of Hebrews, which talks about why it was so necessary for God to do a new thing, because the thing he had done before, while it was beautiful and while it was perfect, people didn't treat it that way. And as Paul 
points out in his letter to the Romans, which we're in today, sin hijacks that old covenant that was beautiful and perfect and twists it to its own ends. Now, as Jeremiah says at the beginning of his book, when he tells the story of God's call on him, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And in all of these verses that I've quoted to you, that word know is the Hebrew yada, that intimate, deep, personal knowledge. So I think it's especially fitting in the song that we sang just now that you have this repeating line, you understand me confess, when I first listened to that, I thought, great, another one of these Jesus is my boyfriend CCM worship songs. But what the writer of the song is getting at is what Paul is talking about in our passage in Romans today, where he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose, for Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I do believe that Greek prognosko, those I knew, those God foreknew, those God knew, in advance doesn't just mean that God knew about them. Doesn't just mean that God said, oh yeah, just Abby, she's going to come along. And No. God says, I knew Abby from the dawn of time, before there was time. I knew and I loved her. And there's a lot about this beautiful chain of words that makes sense. Those he knew, he predestined. It makes sense that God would know people, and because he knows them, he could say, yes, as Jesus said, I, I chose you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And God also chooses, always in Scripture, his choosing is for a purpose. It's not just choosing so that you're special and somebody isn't. It's choosing because he has something for you to do. God chose, he predestined, and those that he he had in mind to do certain things, he called them to do those. And as makes sense in light of the things that we read before, especially in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, he justified them because our sin is what gets in the way of our being effective for the kingdom. He made us righteous before him. But the last word, the last word does kind of stick out, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, those he foreknew, he also predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. Now, what what is this glory that Paul's talking about? N.T. Wright calls chapters 5 through 8 of Romans one of the greatest set pieces of theology. And if we look at the very beginning of this this unit, chapter 5, we read, Paul saying that, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Before I move on, I have to just point out what ridiculously good news this is. In fact, this news is so good that along the way, some people thought it was too good and that Paul must not have said that we have peace. He must have meant, well, let's try to have peace. There are some variant manuscripts where people change the word and they say, okay, Paul can't, can't really mean that we definitely have peace. He, he must say that, that we, we should try. And no, that's not what Paul said. The earliest, the best manuscripts say, no, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses later, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and therefore we have peace. And in fact, because we have that peace, because we've gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. In the middle of chapter 8, just at the beginning of kind of the, the chunk of text that Joe selected for this series, Paul says in verse 17, if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So I think Paul is talking about two different kinds of glory here. He's talking about Christ's glory, the glory of God is demonstrated and expressed in Jesus Christ. And he's talking also about our glory, which is a reflection or a refraction of Christ's. I think it's fitting that we are looking at these verses during Eastertide, those of us in the or liturgical traditions, are still in the season of Easter. In fact, our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, because they handle their calendar a little differently, they're celebrating Easter today. For us, it was four weeks ago. But Easter goes all the way up to Pentecost, which is at the end of this month. On Eastertide, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that because he is raised from the dead, we have the hope of that resurrection for ourselves. And N.T. Wright does, in fact, say that in this passage that we have today, the glory Paul is referring to almost certainly is a reference to the glory of the risen Jesus, who rose bodily from the dead in a glorified body. I want to quickly run over the best place in Scripture to look at to understand what that means, which is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says in chapter 15, starting in verse 12, if it's been preached that Christ was raised from the dead, then how can some people be saying that there is no resurrection? Of the dead. Why would people be saying there's no resurrection of the dead? 
Well, because every moron knows that dead people stay dead. I mean, we know more about science today than they did in the first century, but by the first century, people had figured out that dead people stay dead. In fact, one of the earliest things we had to work out as human beings was dealing with dead people, because if you don't do something with them, then you're going to get uh, disease and you're going to get scavenging animals. You have to take dead people and put them someplace where they're not going to cause you any more problems. So in the first century, they, it was not a big revelation that dead people stay dead. The idea that somebody had raised from the dead was as outrageous a claim back then as it is to us today. And so naturally, there were people in Corinth who wanted to fit in with the smart set, people who were in the church, but they still were carrying their public television tote bags and had their Deepak Chopra books under their arms and they knew, of course, from the latest TED Talk that dead people stay dead. So, they're like, well, of course, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. And Paul says, no, actually, he did. No, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of them that sleep. For since by a man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the testimony of the early church was firmly and univocally, univocally that Jesus Christ, well and truly dead, was raised from the dead. And he was not raised as an ethereal Spirit. He was raised bodily. I just noticed this morning in this magnificent stained glass window over here, and all of you, when you come back to church, you can look at it to, to check out my story, but this window in the, in the north transept portrays the, the, uh, the risen Lord Jesus. This is actually Jesus coming in glory at his coming again. But Jesus is portrayed with one foot sticking out from his robe, it uh, could just be that the artist measured the robe a little short, but I think the artist is trying to point out that Jesus, even as he is glorified, even as he's holding the, the world in his hands, that he's also still fully human with that, that most humble and low part of his body sticking out, all five of his toes. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. Now, some people, Paul goes on to say in verse 35, some people are going to say, well, how, how could the dead be raised? What, what kind of body are they going to have? You're an idiot, says Paul. I mean, it's probably translated more politely in your Bible, but basically, verse 36, Paul says, you're an idiot. I mean, and, and frankly, you're, you're not an idiot because you're ignorant. You're an idiot because you're deliberately being ignorant, or as we would say in Baltimore, ignorant. You're deliberately throwing up a stupid objection in order to dodge the difficulty of the reality that's being presented to you. You're an idiot. I mean, after all, when, when you, what you sow doesn't come to life until it dies, Right? I mean, when, when you sow 
a seed, you don't sow what's going to come up. Anybody who, who cooks knows that coriander and cilantro are the same plant. Coriander is the seed, cilantro is the herb. Right? You, you put a piece of coriander in the dirt and it grows up to be cilantro. So we know that that's how it works. God gives it a body as he has determined. And it's going to be the same way, Paul says, with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Jesus' body, fully human, went to the grave with all the weaknesses that every one of our human bodies has. And yet, when God raised him from the dead, he raised him in a body that was and is glorified. You'll hear people say, Jesus was a man. That's true as far as it goes. The fact is, he still is. As a man, fully man and fully God, he sits at the right hand of the Father. The first man, Paul says, in verse 48, 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are all of us who are of the earth. But as is the man from heaven, so also are all who are from heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, just as we in every way have lived out the reality of being human, following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, our forebears, our progenitors, just as they chose to rebel against God and his ways and chose to do things the way they wanted to, so we have done the very same things. And just as they suffered death because they invited that into the cosmos, so we have, so we will. So far, the mortality rate for humanity is really close to 100%. I mean, you got the stories of a couple people, Enoch and Elijah, who seem to have been translated. If you're Catholic, you believe that the Blessed Mother of God also was translated to heaven without being, having to suffer death. I always thought the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary was aptly named. But that's not the end of the story. No, Paul says. Just as we've borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, my brothers and sisters, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. The, the perishable doesn't inherit the imperishable. But listen, Paul says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. 
When Jesus comes back, there will be those who are alive, but most of us will be in that nearly 100% of those that lose our first skirmish with death. But we will not all, though we will not all sleep, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. The mortal must clothe itself with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I skipped over the verse, but Harry Potter fans will remember the quote on Harry's parents' tombstone, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see a picture of what it looks like for a human being to be glorified, for a human being to cast off the grubby, fallen, broken, imperfect reality of bodily existence as we know it now, and to live into the glorified bodies that God has for us. Jesus was the first fruits, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first of many brethren, as he puts it in Romans 8. As he is, so we shall be. So when Paul is talking about these two kinds of glory, about Christ's and about ours, we, of course, when we think about ours, want to think about, well, what does that mean? Paul gives us something of an answer in 2 Corinthians chapter, thir- chapter 3. He says that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's this tension that we keep encountering in Paul between the already and the not yet. So we think about the glory that is coming then, but we also think about the glory that somehow, in some way, is ours now. Because, annoyingly, Paul does say not those he called he justified and those he justified he will glorify. No, he says those he justified he glorified. Do we understand that as just the reality from a God's eye point of view outside of time? Do we look at that as something that is just looking into the future and knowing that that will be accomplished even though it's not the case yet? Or do we look at it and say, 
Yes, this is what we will know. What we will know in full, but now we can have a taste of it. Now we can have an anticipation of what we will one day experience in full. And because, after all, we are living now, not then, we are living in the already, not the not yet, the question we ask is, how do we do that? And the answer, as I'm sure Pastor Joe has been preaching about for the last few weeks, is by the Spirit. Chapter 8 of Romans is all about the Spirit. Paul starts out in chapter 8 saying that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, just like in chapter 5, we have peace with God. Paul doesn't say we should really try hard so that we cannot have any condemnation. No, he says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the life-giving Torah of the Spirit set me free from the death-dealing Torah of sin. What Torah was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and in so doing he condemned sin and sinful people in order that the righteous requirements of Torah would be fully met in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Really, Romans 8, and I just, it's one of these passages of Scripture that you can never meditate on too much. You can never spend too much time reading and absorbing and just marinating in this. It's all about what it means for us to be people of the Spirit, people whom the Spirit indwells, the Spirit works through. It was only a chapter later on that night he was betrayed after Jesus said, now remember, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. He said, don't forget, I'm sending the Spirit. It's actually good for you that I'm going away because you're not going to have the Spirit until I do. But when I do, you're going to have him. The thing we need to never forget is what Paul says in conclusion at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians when he talks about the glorious resurrection that is Christ's and will be ours. You know, hanging out in some circles, you might think that Paul would say, therefore, in light of this, just, you know, try not to get in too much trouble until that happens. And like maybe do, do some good things. Um, but basically, this is all going to be what God does, and so you just kind of sit around and, and wait for it to happen. That's not what Paul says. He says, therefore, in light of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and that we will one day be raised from the dead in glorified bodies like his, therefore, Paul says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't let anybody move you. You think about a lineman. Don't let anybody push you off your position. Hold firm. Don't let anything move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I had a 
really rich conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who's an old friend from college and so many things about his life just haven't worked out. He's tried a whole bunch of different things and they haven't been nearly as fruitful. I mean, he's an incredibly smart, gifted, capable, and he just hasn't seen the kind of success he would want to see. And, and he's a faithful follower of Christ. And so he, he wants to be fruitful for the kingdom. He wants to, to see God working in and through him. And he just keeps finding that not happening. I reminded him of the story of Simeon. After, of course, I, I mean, you don't do that when somebody's upset. You don't say, well, let me tell you about this Bible story and that'll be all better. But... I, you know, after at the end of this really, just really long, rich conversation, I just see, you know, I'm thinking about Simeon, who was hanging out in the temple every day, and God had promised him that he would see the Messiah, that he was going to be presented with the consolation of Israel. And so every day, day after day, he hung out in the temple, waiting sure, praying, studying. And you imagine every day, sometime maybe around 4 or 4.30, he's like, yeah, I guess probably this isn't the day. Guess I'll be back here tomorrow. And when Mary and Joseph finally present Jesus in the temple, Simeon responds with one of those beautiful songs that Luke gives us in the Thomas Cranmer's translation in the first prayer book is magnificent. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of thy people Israel. And maybe it was like that. I think it's more likely he was like, finally I can die. Because he had been there doing the things that he could do. Always giving himself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that his labor in the Lord was not in vain. Now God drafts us. He drafts us to be position players. And this is something Paul talks about elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. That same spirit that indwells us is the one that empowers us to do the things God has called us to do. The same spirit that empowers other people to do the things God has called them to do so that we don't have to do those things. One of the great joys of my life is that God has never called me to do middle school ministry. I'm so grateful for the people he's called to do that, not me. I want to close with this passage. Our, Our house church spent some time in the book of Colossians this year. At the beginning, Paul tells this church that he's never actually met, never visited. As far as we know, he never did. But he says, you know, since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you. What have we, what have we prayed? What have we asked God for? It's the same thing that I ask God for, for you, for me. New hope, God, fill you with the knowledge of His will. 
through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. That you may have great endurance and patience. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us. Not he will rescue us. Not he might rescue us. No, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.